Well, uh, we've been talking all weekend about authority. How many people were here for some of those talks? All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about authority, I think. It kind of depends on how the time runs, which means how long-winded am I. Um, but Trent asked a question yesterday about authority versus power. And I was going to do this message. It was purely on authority. And the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I felt like I should talk about power. So I'm actually going to vector off of the sole topic of authority. And I want to talk about power. And we'll try to thread some authority concepts that go with it in. And maybe we'll make the whole thing make sense, I hope. Um, so having said all that, open your Bibles in whatever form you carry them to Exodus chapter 33. And this is a famous passage. Lots of people uh, have camped out on this passage for a long time, but there's some interesting conversation that goes on here between Moses and God. Exodus 33:12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Now, this prayer is a circular prayer. What he's saying is, if you show me your ways and I follow them, I'll find favor. I've already found favor. So as I follow those ways, I'll find more favor. And as I follow what you show me, then the favor will go up. And, you know, we talked a little bit about favor as an external, at least external favor, as a metric of authority. It's not the only one we can use, but it's, it's one of them we discussed this weekend. But Moses is making a petition to the Lord, show me your ways that I may honor them, that I may follow in them. I might add to that just as a, like a one sentence commentary. Uh, many of us maybe don't know the ways of God as well as we think we do. This is a lot more than just don't do a few things. There's a whole book full of things that teach us the ways of God, and in many cases, people are ignorant of them, and particularly in our day. And so back to something I was stressing yesterday, I think we really need to get into the Word of God. There's a lot of practices and behaviors that I find in a lot of the churches that I travel to that are, they're not okay with God. He's a forgiving God, he's a loving God, but that doesn't mean they're okay with Him. And in the end, by doing them, even unwittingly, it will create problems with us in this dimension of authority and power. I'll just leave it at that without further commentary. If you have questions about what that might mean, maybe we'll talk after the service. But anyway, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight, that the favor that I have will go up. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Oh, don't just teach me, Lord. Teach your nation this. And so with that, Moses, the lawgiver, is effectively saying, give me the ability to impart that which I learned to others. And God said to him, or excuse me, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. No presence, don't want to leave. I'd rather just stay here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us? The presence of God with the people of God is one of the proofs that God's favor rests upon us. And if you understand that presence there's an equation. It's not exactly the same, but there's a linkage between the presence of God and the power of God. And we understand that authority releases power. Then all of these things start to interlink. And so it's critical that we have presence among us and around us because that's what marks us out as different. 
And to that point, we are not interested in looking like the nations around us. God said, be holy as I am holy. So this whole, this whole movement that I see in the church, we want to become more like the people around us. We want to get pierced like them. We want to get this like them. We want to drink like them. We want to, you know, have our whiskey and cigars like them. No, God said be different. Holy doesn't mean sanctimonious. It means different from. So there's a division, and it's not only our behaviors, it's presence resting upon us. So when those come together, it's very powerful. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by my name. I know you by name, excuse me. Now Moses ups the prayer. He's been praying for presence. Now Moses raises the bid. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the Lord is not only saying, I will show you my glory, but he is also saying, I will show you, effectively, I will show you my son. You will see that my back, because the glory of God, as the book of John tells us, is seen in the son. And what had Moses started out his prayer with? He said, well, you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. God is effectively saying, I will send my son with you. He's praying to the father, but he's saying the son will accompany you. Now, if you understand this investiture concept that I taught on the weekend, that we get invested because of our relationship to the Son, you can see even in the Old Testament this is foreshadowed, even if it isn't made fully clear. Now, one of the key distinctions of the present move of God that's underway in the earth is the power of God. It's not uniform, and in some cases it hasn't yet hit but the power of God. Now, Christian and Jewish theology has always had a robust teaching about the power of God. <clears throat> Most Christian theology has tended to emphasize God's power in the past, that which he did, talking about, say, the plagues of Exodus or the parting of the Red Sea or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but it has not, in general, tended to stress his present current now acts of power some segments of the church have done that vineyard's been famous for that the pentecostals in some quarters still do it a hundred years ago they were very uh onto that but in other quarters pentecostal churches may not be doing that but to understand the current move of god we have to understand that when we preach and when i say preach i don't necessarily mean what i'm doing you know there'll be some that do this kirk does it nicole does it Scott might do it, Trent does it, but there'll be others that would never do that. But you know, you're still a preacher. You, you still share in the marketplace, whether it's in the coffee bar or at your job or school or, you know, whatever. But we are all preachers. But here's what we don't 
maybe understand, so I want to put a really fine point on it. When we preach, we preach unto the release of the power of God. That is what we seek all the time. This isn't meant to be a mental exercise. And so when I say the power of God, I don't mean just that people would be inspired and feel good. That's good if that happens. We want that to happen. But it's actually more than that. And when I talk about this, I mean more than the concept of God's power. Some sort of theological dissertation about it, a tractate, whereby we conceptualize or mentally assent to the power of God. There's a lot of people who say, I think I've experienced the power of God. If you're saying that, you haven't experienced the power of God. Because when you encounter the power of God, you know. Now, just as I say that, I look over at Jody Ann over there. And I haven't seen Jody in a while, but I'm thinking of a when I came here, what, seven years ago, six years ago, and you and Nicole ended up on the kitchen floor in the Delaney's house, and the power of God just overwhelmed you guys, and you kind of, you were trying to cook, was it lunch or dinner? I don't remember. Lunch. But what I do remember is you lay there, both of you, vibrating for 45 minutes. Lunch was late that day. There was no question that Jody and Nicole had been encountered by the power of God. Yeah, thank you. So, this business of the power of God, this is not just a concept. This is not, I think, this is I know because I've stepped into it. It's an experience of God's power. We're intended to walk in that, and we, in, we seek to preach that the power of God would be released in all that we do. Now, maybe four years ago, I was down in Melbourne. I was preaching in a church um, not a vineyard church, but it, I was preaching in this church, and they had a they had a younger minister that was on staff there, and he was a good, earnest man. He'd been to a good Bible school. He'd done all the coursework. He was now in his, you know, kind of starting his career as a minister. And this guy, he could talk about the power of God. He'd read John Calvin, and he'd written the papers, and he understood conceptually what the power of God was. But the thing I noticed is as I was down there, we were having a week of meetings, and great power was moving in these meetings. But this guy, he was always kind of hanging out at the back, and often he wasn't even in the room. And... On one of the, I guess it was right near the end, I don't remember if it was the last night or the, maybe the second to the last, but I met with their prayer team, their large you know, ministry team for the altar, and it was a larger church, and so their, their prayer team was about 70 people. And so we had this gathering, and I was teaching uh, uh, them, and I don't remember what I was teaching, but anyway, it came time for the you know, show and tell, the time to do it, and I had this word about somebody who had a problem with their right wrist and I said I believe you have metal in your wrist I think you've actually had some sort of plates and screws put in is that person in the room and right up the back this way towards where Trent is standing um, this older woman jumps up and she goes that's me and as she's walking down the aisle the Lord spoke to me and he said tell her in front of the room to stretch out her hand not unlike what Jesus did with that man in the synagogue And so she came down to the front you're gonna have to up the sound because I'm competing with our father. <laughs> but she came down the front, and as she did, I kind of looked up the back, and here was this younger minister, and he wasn't in the meeting, but he was kind of, you know, looking in the door like this, almost like he didn't want to be seen. And she came down the front, and as, as she did, I said, do you have metal in your wrist? Yeah. I said, screws and plates? Yeah. 
And I didn't know it at the time, but she was actually the head of their prayer team. And I said, well, stretch out your hand. And as she did, there was a resounding that went through the whole room. You could hear it all the way to the back. And she goes, I'm healed. And I said, are you sure? Yeah, watch. She drops and starts doing push-ups. She said, I couldn't do that. Now, as I looked up the back again, all I could see was the backside of this young minister scurrying away. There's a big difference between the intellectual ascent, the theoretical knowledge of the power of God, and the release of the power of God. And it's authority that allows power to be released. I'll tell you another story. I was in Central America, and um, I was holding meetings down there, and I'd taken a really good team with me. Had a dozen people, and these guys were like a team of Navy SEALs, man. They were battle-hardened, experienced. Most of them I'd trained them myself, a couple not, but these, these were good. There's one woman on the team. Um, I call her Mi Evangelista in Spanish. This woman is a, is a Mexican-American that has come to the United States. She, you know, has taken up residence. She's a legal resident, unlike many. And um, this woman is filled with fire and excitement. And on a typical week, she will lead 10 people to the, to the Lord. One day I went to meet her and another woman for coffee in one of the local shops. And I walked in. And as I walked in, I was about two minutes late. They had some guy kind of buttonholed, sort of, not really. But anyway, and they were talking to him. They prayed for him in the coffee shop. He got healed and gave his life to the Lord right on the spot. And then we had our little coffee meeting. I mean, this woman takes no prisoners. She's all about it. And so anyway, she was part of our team down there. Just to give you kind of a sample of the kind of people that we're talking about. She regularly gets invited to Spanish churches all over Los Angeles. And, you know, she'll, she'll walk in and the Lord will just level the room. And people will get delivered, healed. This is, she loves it. But she's a real estate agent. She's not actually a, you know, a full-time preacher. So you don't have to be in the ministry to do the ministry. So anyway, that's the kind of people on my team. So we get down to this Central American country, and man, it's miserable. I mean, I'm hating it. It gets to be like the end of night one, and I call my wife. I said, I hate this. Can I come home? She goes, no, you stay down there. God sent you there. And I'm like, I hate you. So we have, we have eight nights of meetings, and I'm, I'm not liking this. Night two is no better. Night three is worse. And so it's like plowing through mashed potatoes. I'm preaching my, my guts out. I'm trying to, you know, have something break loose, and it's not working. And somewhere in there, we had a luncheon, and the pastor, who knew exactly why he had brought me down there, you know, he wanted me to meet all of his staff. And so we have this luncheon, and all the staff are sitting around this table. It was a square table, not a round one, but... Anyway, I sit down on this corner, and we kind of go down this way, and then this way, and we come around. Everyone's telling me this is their port, or, yeah, this is what they do, their portfolio, um, kind of size of the ministry, all that they. And this church is a pretty substantial church in in that country, in the capital city. So they they go around, and each one, I'm looking at them, and the Lord gives me a word for them. The Lord gives me a word. The Lord gives me a word. And as we come around the last turn, we get over to this guy right here. He's the two I see. And as I look at him, the Lord says, this man is not your friend. What am I supposed to do with that? But anyway, we kind of get through the lunch and we keep plowing along. Somewhere in there, we started having our private prayer appointments. We'd broken the team down into pairs, and we had lots of people who had really deep needs, problems, coming for individualized ministry, and 
I get this one guy, and, and he has a fatal blood disease, and he's on his glide path to death. And we pray for him, and nothing happens. And I am utterly depressed, and I keep calling home. Can I come home? Stay down there. Finish the mission, right? So we're plowing through this thing. And lots of people are getting healed in the one-on-ones, but not as many as I think should be, given what I'm used to seeing, particularly when I'm outside of normal Western nations. And this guy in particular doesn't get healed. And so we kind of wrap up the prayer times, and I'm utterly depressed. It gets to be night seven, and I still haven't seen anything that I would call real breakthrough. But get to the end of the message, call people forward for prayer, the team is ready, and all of a sudden I look over and just about where John is sitting, uh, here stands that guy with the blood disease. And as I look at him, out of the corner of my eye, I see something that looks kind of like a shaft, or if you will, a javelin, and it's headed right at him. And I, I see it coming from there to there, and I just pointed at him and I said, the power of God's on you. And we were about this far apart. And he gets blown off his feet and knocked backward. And he lands on the floor under the power of God. And all of a sudden I realize it's on. And so do all the Navy SEALs. Full auto, man. They're ready. The room just lights up all across the room. Meanwhile, that guy's wife is standing there looking at her husband under the power of God. And I said, you, it's on you, boom, over she goes. Five of the elders go down, the room's exploding. Three cripples get healed over here. I mean, it's, it's crazy insane. And when it's all done, people are kind of, you know, pulling themselves up off of chairs and they're, what was that? That was the power of God. And our issue was that too, I see. He was opposed to all of this. He wasn't the most senior leader in the church, but he had enough influence and he knew how to work the system. He was a block to everything that was going on. The next morning I get a phone call, would you come down to the church? And I'm thinking, okay, here it goes. And I get down there and who's there but the two I see. You think God loves some people more than others. I never said that in my message. No, but you said the Holy Spirit's on some more than others. I said, no, I said the power of God was on them, and it's a dynamic, active thing where he's intersecting their world right at that moment. But I said, did you notice that the whole room got hammered? Except you. I didn't say that. I thought it, though. Because, you know, it's like a line of paratroopers jumping out of a C-130. Somebody's got to go first. But everybody gets in. Everybody gets to play. So that night it started with that guy. And I'd had a phone call that morning before I went down to the church. He'd already been down to the lab. His blood disease was gone. So this guy keeps pushing me. No, no, you think God loves some more than others. That's not good theology. I said, I don't believe that at all. I believe God loves all men and women equally. I said, you are, you are twisting my words. And he just stayed on it. And finally, he pushed me far enough. I did something I would not normally do. And I looked at him and I said, tell me exactly which part of his being healed of a fatal blood disease did you object to? Well, that kind of ended the conversation in many ways. But that guy had a theoretical knowledge of the power of God. He'd been through his training, but he'd never seen it in operation. He'd never experienced that kind of thing before. The church was a buzz after that. The last night was pretty good because, you know, he'd kind of blown the roof off, and so now things could happen. And 
at the end of the day, um, the Lord, you know, showed his power in that, in that church. So when I talk about we preach under the release of the power of God, it won't always be that dramatic. It won't always be that, that kind of a release. But we seek it. And when we do, we seek to recapture something of the essence of the earliest of Christianity, the very essence that caused the Apostle Paul to write this. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, there's nothing wrong with good words. Paul could write pl plenty of them. We know this from the book of Romans and other books that he wrote. He was a well-trained, well-seasoned individual. So this isn't about we're holding up ignorance or poor grammar or faulty logic. We're not, we're not taking that line of approach. But it's rather that our confidence rests not on being clever, but rather that God would back the act. That's really what we're looking for. My message and my, uh, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration in the spirit of the spirit and of power, so that, in order that, your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words and talk, but in power. Power. Power is the dynamic action of God. It is released through believers because of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are the operative ways in which that happens. Sometimes they're flashier than others. But all of that power is released because we have authority and we understand that we can use that authority. So all weekend we've talked about authority, but many people get this confused. You know, the old illustration, the policeman has a badge and a gun. Most of the time he uses the badge, right? When you see the policeman, you pull over if his lights are on. If he's in the middle of the road and he does this, you stop. Does he have the power to stop a moving car? No way. If he does this, does he have the power to pull a stalled car or a stopped car? No way. But we're honoring the authority. But under the right set of circumstances, if necessary, he has a gun, that's the power, and he can unholster it and use it if he needs to. We hope there isn't a lot of need for that in a policeman's job, but we all know from time to time that is necessary. So what about the power of God? What is this thing that we're talking about that we call the power of God? Well, here's a few thoughts about it. Number one, the power of God is self-sufficient. It's more than self-sufficient. It actually gives rise unto itself because it is an expression of God itself, of, of God himself. It originates with no one else. It is dependent on no one else, and the power of God is an expression of the glory of God. Moses said, show me your glory. We'll explore that more in a moment. God said to Moses in 13 and 14, the verses 13 and 14, I am who I am. Sorry, Exodus 3, 13 and 14. God said to Moses when Moses said, who shall I tell the Israelites is sending me? God said, I am who I am. And then he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here we see the self-sufficiency of God that he gives rise to himself. There is nothing else upon which he depends. And the power of God is an expression of that God whom we serve when it is exhibited. And this is part of why Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He'd actually already seen a few glimpses of it. Ten plagues, parted Red Sea, uh, the, the burning bush, the the staff of authority that he'd thrown down that turned into a snake. These were all expressions of it, but he's basically saying, I need more, I want to see this again. And by the way, Lord, would you please up the ante? I want to see more of that. That's the nature of the prayer encounter that we were reading in Exodus 33, not Exodus 3. 
Moreover, according to Jeremiah 10:12, he created the world by his power. I'm actually going to turn there and read it because it's, it's something that we don't often think enough about. Jeremiah 10, 12, it is he who made the earth by his power. There it is. He established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. By the way, there's a whole teaching in that about creative miracles and their linkage to the word of wisdom, but we don't have time to go there. Maybe, maybe next time when I come back. Proverbs 3.19 echoes this same thing. You may not have thought of that, but um, the book of Proverbs says this about the power of God. The Lord by wisdom founded the universe or founded the earth. Well, we already said that the power was but what he created the earth by. So there we see the linkage between wisdom and power. Wisdom has a creative dimension to it. By understanding, he established the heavens. And by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. So here's what we know. Here's some words from Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, if he's become wisdom and we see the role that wisdom plays, both by the writings of Jeremiah as well as the writings of Solomon in Proverbs 3, then we understand that Jesus Christ is the power of God exhibited, and thus we tie right back into our Exodus 33 passage. This is radically Christocentric when we talk about the power of God. Not only that, John the Apostle says this in John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There you go. I mean, it's not a direct statement, but it's clearly logically linked. Jesus is the one through whom power is exhibited, and he is, in fact, the power of God. Not only that, Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only is the power of God creative, it is sustaining. Not only is Jesus the one through whom God created the universe, he is the one through whom he sustains the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here's how the book of Hebrews says it. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What did Moses say? Show me your glory. He is the the, the word radiance could mean the effulgence. It's like, you know, when you see the sun coming up, but you haven't yet seen the sun, but you see those rays just, you know, on the edge of the horizon, and the, the whole sky starts to light up, that's what we're talking about. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's the sustaining power of God. And moreover, in him, all things hold together, according to Colossians 1.17. So when people talk about spiritual power, there's a lot of power in the universe. But the only way to get the power of God, the one that I'm talking about, the only way that can come is if Jesus is in the center of it. No other religion can deliver this. Not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Islam, not Zoroastrianism, Sikhism, Jainism. I don't care which one it is. None of them will do. And this is why we talk about the all-supremacy of Christ. This is why we say at his feet, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. There is salvation in no one else in him, or there is no other name given under heaven by which men and women can be saved. I don't care what the government says. I don't even care what a lot of church systems say. There is no one who can take the place of Jesus. And if, if you understand that we preach under the release of the power of God, and you understand that this is where it originates, then you understand why we preach under the power by way of proclaiming him. He is first in existence, first in rank and privilege of all 
created beings in the universe. He himself is not created. He's uncreated. He is eternally existent with the Father, but all creation bows to him. Now, when we talk about power, it's linked to authority. We said when we looked at Luke 9 that Jesus gave them both power and authority. He was delegating a portion of that which he had and carried existent in himself intrinsically. He was giving them part of that. But the authority is the ability to release that. And then they went out on their mission. The power of God in Greek is dunamis, and it's the same word from which we get the word miracles. So the power of God is miraculous power, and according to Hebrews 6.5, it gives us a snapshot, a glimpse into the power of the coming age. What will the new world look like? Well, when we see these kinds of things happen, this is what the new world looks like. And this is, this is directly related to the message of the kingdom of God, because the kingdom is breaking in, but the kingdom is not yet fulfilled. But when it is fulfilled, there will be no more sickness, and there will be a lot of other things that are fixed too, but... Narrowly, we're talking about sickness and whatnot, and that's the two examples I started with demonstrate that. Well, let's go on. Let's go back to Exodus 33. Now that we understand a little bit about what the power of God is theologically, we can say this, God's presence and his glory and his power are interlinked. God's presence, God's glory, and God's power are interlinked. God promised his presence to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 33, 14. I made, a, I made a deal of that. I stopped and dwelt on it as we were reading the passage. But for Moses, that was the minimum. He was unwilling to move from his spot where he was without it. But Moses sought more. As I said, he wanted to see the glory of God, which would lead him ultimately to the power of God. So God responded that he would show all of his goodness to Moses. And the way he was going to do that was to proclaim his name, cover Moses so that he wouldn't see his face, but he would see his back. And so we can see that the glory of God is, is somehow revealed in the goodness of God made manifest and displayed for the world. Now, the glory of God had actually appeared on the mountain in fire and in shaking prior to Exodus 33, we see this in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, it says, verses 18 to 20, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This isn't, this isn't like a little shake. This is like... And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. Now, these are probably like shofar trumpets. So, it's getting loud up there. But they're blowing the trumpets. It's what it says. We read this stuff like it's one dimension. It's getting ear splitting. Louder and louder. And then Moses spoke. What did Moses speak? He spoke and said, Show me your glory. Exodus 33 gives us the deep dive on the summary account of ex Exodus 19. And God answered him in thunder. John 12, 29. Some said it thundered, but the rest said God spoke. You guys rem might remember when I was here a couple years ago, 
And I was preaching about how God was about to speak, and that huge peal of thunder shook the building, and most of us ended up on the floor, I think out of fear, but anyway. Nice to be living in the realm of signs and wonders. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. Why? Well, because he was going to show Moses his back. To the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That story goes on in Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. Except my pages are sticking together. Exodus 24, verses 16 and 17. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Moses got what he asked for. He saw the glory. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The people were down below. They were not allowed to come up. But as they looked up, it looked like the whole top of the mountain was on fire, and it was burning and smoke. And they're like, what happened to Moses? This is part of why they went after the golden calf, because like no one could survive that. He must be dead. But Moses is up there. He already had presence, but now he's entering into an encounter where glory comes. And we see in this that the glory of God is not a what, but a who, because we see the back and we see through the linkages that we've shown out of John and Hebrews and Colossians, Jesus is that glory. But God wasn't yet willing to show the full extent why? Well, because this is Old Testament times. It's not yet New Testament times. John the Apostle would say, we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten. There's a revelation of glory that exceeds that which Moses saw that's available to us. And this we declare to you based on what we have experienced. That's what John says. But we've talked about presence. We've talked about glory. Now we're going to move to power. The power of God is revealed through Jesus. Now, we've already said that, but Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 makes it clear Jesus is the one through whom God created the universe. So when we talk about that creative aspect, that creative power, we are, in fact, talking about Jesus himself. And as we already saw in Jeremiah, God created the world through his power. Therefore, Jesus is the word of his power. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he not only reveals the glory of God, he's not only the creative power of God, he upholds the universe by the Word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And Jesus not only is the living power of God, but he shows the power of God in his ministry. When he approaches Lazarus's tomb, what does he say to the sisters? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You would see my power unveiled. Lazarus, come forth! And the dead man comes out of the tomb. And Jesus revealed the power of God when he himself was raised from the dead, Romans 1, 4. God exhibited, God displayed the very living power of God when he raised Christ from the dead. But wait, it gets better. The power of God is directed right at us. 
It's like standing on the motorway and waiting for the car to hit you, or on the railroad track and waiting for the train to run you down. Luke 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. When did that happen? After Luke 4.1 and Luke 3.21, we talked about all that this weekend. The initial touch of the Spirit, the infilling the Spirit, but on the back end of all of his temptation in the wilderness, power is now moving through him, and he is displaying, I would say, with great liberty, at will, this power of God. Luke 5.17, the story of the paralytic, it says the power of the Lord was present for healing while Jesus was preaching in the house that day, and the paralytic gets healed. But it goes on, Luke 6.19, people sought to touch Jesus, and as many as touched him, power came out of him, and they were healed. He wasn't healed, well, he was healing them, but he wasn't actually seeking to heal them. They were reaching out for that power, and as they, as they contacted it, they got healed. Apparently, a woman with an issue of blood heard about this because in Luke 8:46 she tries the same thing, and we have a deep dive story. In Luke 6:19, it's the story of many people doing this, but in Luke 8:46, it's the story of one single woman, and we see what that looks like when power contacts her, healing is released. Luke 24:49, the disciples were told they would receive power. Now, if you're going to receive power, you have to have the ability to release power. Thus, you must understand your authority. But the disciples were told they would receive that power, the same kind of power that Jesus exhibited. Acts 1.8, Jesus reemphasizes the promise yet again, just in case they didn't get it when he told them the first time. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts 4.33 in the aftermath of all that, the apostles give testimony, it says, and I quote, with great power. Now, this is more than fiery preaching. This is more than great conviction. There is a confirmation. There is a substantial backup that occurs as the disciples, the apostles, are preaching. And then we have Ephesians 1.19 and 20 that says, the power of God is directed toward us and through us is a portion of the power that he exerted in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. This is the birthright of a Christian. This is our divine right. We are allowed to have this. We should have this. And if we don't, our Christianity is subnormal. So ask yourself, how are you doing? Are you living the normal Christian life or the subnormal Christian life? Now, I thought when I came to Pine Rivers this weekend, I was going to be preaching mostly on the hows. But instead, we backed up to the what's. We'll get to the how's maybe on a different trip. I don't know. Maybe Kirk will teach on it. Or maybe you guys will buy all my stuff and listen to it. I don't know. However we get there. But, you know, techniques matter. They do. If you don't understand the mechanics of how the power works, you might not be as effective with it as you ought to be. You know, policemen have to train with their guns so they can hit what they aim at. It's not enough just to be issued a gun. Hello? A lot of people think power is just about turn it on and blow it up. No. There are very specific things you have to learn about the ways of the Lord as Moses prayed in order that you can be more effective in using the very power you've been given. But as it's worked out this weekend, we haven't talked as much about the house. But now let's get even more uh, focused here. Now that we understand all of this, God's presence, God's power are intended in the people of God to produce praise. 
as we give thanks, as we acknowledge who he is. And as we do that, it releases even more presence and power. This is a virtuous cycle. It goes up. Now, we're not doing this to manipulate God. You know, some of the stuff we call high praise sounds very sort of fleshy and, you know, come on, everybody, turn the crank. Let's give God his due. But when it is authentic from the heart praise, it will actually release an increase of power that comes down. I can think of meetings we've held in this building in years gone by where the, the music, the praise, the singing and worship, which I'm going to get to in a moment, kind of went through the roof. And you remember that one meeting where everybody was just getting knocked down when the Lord was walking through the building and people were saying, I felt a hand on my shoulder and I turned to look and there was nothing there. And then I went out. Remember that? It was about five years ago. It was you, Faz, me, and Stuart right on that row there. Yeah. So God's presence and power are intended to produce praise, which releases more presence and power, even under the next generation. So let's talk about that. Psalm 100, verse 4 says this, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. First level of entrance is through thanksgiving. We are, we are to be thankful at all times. Paul has a whole theme of this that runs through the book of Philippians. Thanksgiving will unlock things for us. Oftentimes, we don't feel like giving thanks. Life is hard. We've had a disappointment. We feel shut down. We're in a bad mood. On and on and on it goes. Doesn't matter. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. If you got nothing to give thanks for, give thanks that you know you got to have a roof over your head when you were in church. But here's the thing about Thanksgiving. It is not, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Not, not the Thanksgiving I'm talking about. You can pray that way if you want to. But if you're doing that, that isn't what I'm talking about. Thanksgiving of this type is solid and tangible. It is tied to real things. Thank you that I have a pulpit that isn't a flimsy music stand. I hate music stands. That's what I preach from 90% of the time because everybody's mobile churches these days and they don't have real pulpits. So, Lord, thank you for this pulpit. Yeah, good job, Corey. Thank you, Lord, that my iPad has a full charge on it and unless something unexpected happens, my notes aren't going to vanish in front of me. Thank you, Lord, that I've got a real Bible. I live in a land where I can have a Bible. A lot of countries, you can't do that. Be specific. Thank you, I've got a house, a place to live. I've got food. I've got shoes to wear. I've got clothes to Be specific, concrete, and little things matter. Thank you, I got my oil changed this week. This is super important. I'm giving you a major key to breakthrough. Most people don't realize what I'm throwing, so pay attention. I'm tossing you the beanbag. Catch it while it comes. Give thanks. My suggestion, my strong suggestion is find at minimum of five real things a day for which you can give thanks. It's okay to repeat, by the way, the next day if you can't think of new ones. If you thanked him for your spouse or your children the day one, you can do that again day two. But maybe switch out a few things, right? Lest it become vain repetition. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's where we enter from that kind of world on the outside with all that is wrong with it into at least the beginnings of God's place. But enter his courts with praise. So we follow thanksgiving with praise. Now, praise is something that, if we're honest, isn't, the vineyard's not that good at it. We never have been. We're all about worship. I'll get to worship in a moment, but I want to talk about praise for a moment. Praise is declaring the acts of God. Allowed, specifically. Kirk did a version of it, but he didn't, he didn't make it overtly crazy. It might have been crazy, but not crazy. 
He came up here and he showed his phone. He said, look at this rain cell that opened up over the church as we called on that. And we were joined in creation everywhere around the cell. It's dry. There's not even clouds. But God did something here. That's an act of praise because it's declaring the works of God that we observed with our own eyes, heard with our own ears right here in this building about whatever it was 30 minutes ago. Are we together? That was an act of praise. So praise is declaring the works of God and with it, the greatness of God and the goodness of God, but ordinarily in the third person. Let me tell the nations of the goodness of God. That's not directed at him, it's directed at others. Are you following me? So there is a, there's a declarative aspect to praise, and it's very important because we enter his gates with thanksgiving, we get into, I'm going to add a word, the outer courts with praise. That's how it works. But now we're of worshiping people. That's one of Vineyard's big things, worship. Worship is expressing our love to God in tenderness and intimacy, usually in the second person. The word for worship in Greek is proskuneo, to turn toward to kiss. Well, kissing is ordinarily a fairly intimate act. I mean, you can get more intimate, but that's, that's intimate. And not only that, to kiss, you've got to be like, how close? <laughs> I won't do it. But you've got to be close. You can't kiss at this distance. So what does that mean? We've come through the outer court, and now we're approaching God, and we're truly in his presence. It's not even an arm's length activity. We're right up close. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Moses had this kind of experience, and much of his great revelation and experience arose from that. But when this is being released... Something else happens, and that is a great release of power. Because when we are in that place, and we see it in Jesus' life, I've just said we saw it in Moses' life, this is like, the, this, this is like the, the center of it all. Psalm 71 says this, Psalm 71, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. What is that? That's praise. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power, power, power to all those who are to come. So there is something of this praisey aspect when the power gets released, when we hit the worship point, there is something of this that is intended to spawn a new generation of believers. The Christian faith was always meant to be intergenerational, and maybe part of the reason that we're seeing the breakdown and the next generation isn't coming into all of, all of what maybe we have known or others have known is because this cycle of thanksgiving, praise, worship is broken down, and with it, the, the presence and power has broken down. And so... In so many words, our youth are not convinced. They don't even know what it is they're supposed to be going after in terms of this God that we say we serve. But beyond that, may, they may not have encountered him. Now, I, I think better things of Pine River's Vineyard, but in general, what I'm saying fits very much in the wider church context. Psalm 78 says this, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. What did they do? They gave praise. They gave testimony. 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds and his might. What is that? Well, that's the power of God. We're declaring his deeds and his power. Tell them to a coming generation and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. The grandchildren that are not yet born of this generation should be telling to their children the very things that we are experiencing and talking about right now. Are we thinking about a 100-year move of God or a 125-year move of God? Maybe we need to be so that they should set their hope on God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Psalm 102 goes on with this same kind of a theme, and it says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. We record these things, we talk about these things in order that others may give praise for that which has happened. But they need their own encounter. It's not enough just to talk about old history. That he looked down from his holy height from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and to free those who were doomed to die, that they might declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. There it is. They're declaring the works of God and the goodness of God and praising him. Get this, when the peoples gather together and all the kingdoms of the earth to worship the Lord. God's intention is that all the kingdoms of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, every community, every society would be drawn to him on Mount Zion. Sorry for those that don't believe in the... <laughs> I better just stop right there. On Mount Zion, there will be a temple. Jesus will be there. There will be a throne. That'll be his place. It's going to be on Mount Zion. UN, better reread the Bible. But the peoples, when they come, they will have been drawn by praise, the declaration of God's works, the demonstration of God's work, in order that they could worship him. They will get close to that cloud and that presence, exactly the thing that we've already talked about. This is how the power of God is tied to the rolling out of all of these things to the next generation. Now, as I said, we've talked a lot about authority over the weekend, now that you know what we're trying to preach into, what it is we're trying to release, why this is so central and pivotal to what we call world revival, or let's just sound less expansive, the evangelization of Brisbane or the evangelization of Australia, the turning of a nation back to its people, you can now see why we can't get around without the power. But the problem is we can't get around to the power without the authority. The authority has been the a priori that I've talked about through the weekend. Where does authority come from? Well, you know, there's a whole series of things we could say. I have taught on this elsewhere, but I'm, I'm trying to summarize succinctly. But Jesus ransomed us out from under the kingdom of Satan. We were like prisoners held captive, and we had no ability to free ourselves. Jesus even said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's praiseworthy, too. And then out of that ransoming, he disarmed the powers and the authorities, the principalities. This is talked about in Colossians 2, 13 and 15, and he made a public spectacle of them. And he has now triumphed over them by the cross, and he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. 
and he's delegated that. He has invested it more than delegated it. He has bestowed it upon us. Now, Paul dwells on this at some length in the book of Ephesians. We're near the end here. But Paul dwells on this in the book of Ephesians, where he says this. He's talking to the Ephesian church, which had the greatest revival in the history of the New Testament. Nobody went higher than Ephesus. And it's about five or ten years after he's been there. And things have kind of died away. People have gotten a little bit passive. They're sitting back on what was, but they're not in the now with it. And Paul, as he writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, there's that word again, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Let's put that in colloquial language, that the lights would come on, that you would understand the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. It includes authority and power, both. The ability to release it as well as the power to walk in it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power that's directed toward us? We already talked about how that power is directed at us. We cited a number of verses out of Luke. Paul is saying, I want you to understand this limitless, immeasurable greatness of the power. Wow, unlimited power. Now there's issues that can block that manifestation of unlimited power. But Paul says it's directed toward us who believe. And it's in, it's in accordance to just as the working of his great might, his great power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Resurrection power is our power. That's the power we release and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Trumping, ranking, all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then it says, he put him, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Well, if this is the power of the head and the body is joined to the head, then by definition, that power flows through the body. That's a concise summary of a whole nother sermon. But your authority and your ability to move in the supernatural in whichever dimension it is, is based upon your identity in Christ. So that authority based on identity, as you become more and more confident of it, you release greater levels of power because you understand that God actually does want to do this through you. So that's what starts you, but it will sustain you as well in the midst of attacks and counterattacks of various kinds, whether it be fear of failure, temptation to sin, fear of the night, emotional fatigue, physical fatigue, on and on. And so our identity is in our, our, excuse me, our authority is related to our identity. And with this, we understand that we are far more than an accident of nature. We are not just a higher order of monkeys as, as so much of modern science and media and teaching would say. In fact, Psalm 8.5 says we are just a little lower than the angels. But if you read it in Hebrew, it says we're just a little lower than God. Most Bible translations say lower than the angels. But we're actually even above the angels. We're under God himself. And he has given us, through that bequeathal that we talked about on the first session, he has given us that ability to walk in the authority that we had when we were in Eden, where we named the animals and they were what we named them. 
And so with that, we are his workmanship, and we were created unto good works. We were created with a mission that we would create good things out of all that we've been given. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creatures in Christ. We are a fundamentally different order of nature. There's only two races of people on the earth. And I'm not talking about dark-skinned and light-skinned. I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian, the redeemed and the unredeemed, because all the redeemed share this in common. We are new creatures. We've been brought into a new order of existence. We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Ambassadors have the authority to speak on behalf of a government. We speak on behalf of heaven using the authority we've been given, and with that we release great things into our world. Not only that, it gets even stronger than an ambassador. We are joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 16, and 17. What he inherits, we inherit. Why? Because we're joined to him. He's the head, we're the body. But the whole of the body, the whole of that entity gets to share in that. He gets a bigger portion because he's the elder brother, but that's another conversation for another time. We're fellow citizens with God's people. We're part of his house. And that means as sons and daughters of God, we have the ability to access the storehouses of heaven. That's embedded in what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are literally God-bearers. You might not have thought about that one either, and that might kind of push your buttons a little bit. But if the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and he is God, then we are God-bearers. Some people push that too far and it becomes kind of weird, but we'll take this in the best sense and leave it. And not only that, Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. Now, I don't know what all that means. I don't think it means we become God like he is God. But somehow we are, we are made to participate in that which God himself holds unto himself because it is an, and the essential nature of who he is. That's why I started out talking about the power of God being that which is self-sufficient. And somehow he gives us that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Now... We have a destiny as the church. Each of us individually, but all of us as a body, we have a destiny together. And our destiny and our authority to release the power of God in the earth, they are linked. So you cannot realize your destiny. We cannot realize our destiny as the body of Christ without God's power and the authority to release it. It won't happen. We will come short. This is what we've been seeing for centuries. But neither will we properly utilize God's power and the authority to release God's power until we know the destiny to which we've been called. And that's why Paul says in this prayer, I pray your eyes would, would be open, that you would come awake to, the lights would come on, that you would understand you actually have a higher purpose in life. If you live in the light of your purpose, it will keep you away from all kinds of stupid other choices that you could make that you shouldn't make. But the problem is, Words like destiny, words like power, words like authority, in some cases they become shop-worn, maybe diluted through either misuse or overuse, but either way, people put them back in the bucket of mental gymnastics. Well, I already told you the power of God is not about mental gymnastics. It's about real tangibility of God's work in the earth. And so this is why Paul's prayer is relevant. The experiential knowledge of God's power, moving it out of the realm of the theory, this is what keeps us fresh. This is why we need these times of encounter over and over and over again. Now, how do we do this? Three easy steps and then we're done. Step one, know that this kind of authority and power are available to you as a believer and to the church gathered as a people. 
know that it's available. I've tried to give you some information on that. There's a lot more that we could say. We could probably do a 100-week series on it if we wanted to, but we don't have 100 weeks, and I'm over time. Secondly, press in to a true experiential encounter with God. For some, that's harder than others, but you won't have that experience unless you've kind of cleared the decks of all the kind of secondary issues that want to distract us and take us off theme. And that's why Paul says, I pray that your eyes would be enlightened. I pray that you would come awake to the very things that God has for you. Because as you see that and focus on it, there'll be something of it that summons you and draws you. And finally, act. Know that this is available, press into it, and then act. Put what, what, what has happened, put what you have understood about your authority in Christ and the power that you are to release through that authority, put that into action and make sure it's consistent with your destiny. We don't have an unlimited use license. We have authority that is constituted now, but it is given to us with the objective that it would stay on theme with the wider purposes of God. And if you're moving in the center of that, well, nothing can really stop you because what you, what you pray you will receive, 1 John 4.8, I think. No, it's not 4.8. It's in 1 John. Whatsoever things we ask, we receive. Many times people say, well, I didn't receive. Either there's a block or you're not praying according to God's will. It's that simple. So Christianity is not meant to be an intellectual proposition. It's not a spectator sport. The authority of God will release the power of God, which will bring you to the destiny of God. These three things together will get you into the game and carry you to the end of the game. This is what we're called to. This is what we are to go after. In Jesus' name, let it be so. Well, this keeps coming back to me, so I, th I think it's the Lord. You know, when I talked about the man in Central America and how he was healed of a fatal blood disease, are there people here who have systemic diseases? These could be blood diseases. They might be things like autoimmune diseases, whether it be diabetes, hypoglycemia, lupus. I mean, there's a whole range of these things, but they're systemic. They're embedded in your blood or your organs. Are there people here who have that? Or am I off the mark? There's one, two, only two, three, all right. Three of you can come up, can come up here. Dan, Lori, Kate, come on up. Well, the good news is we have a healthier church than maybe we think. Somebody have a problem with their white blood cell count? I get, I'm getting the, I'm not sure this is right. Maybe I'm getting my merds wixed and I'm thinking of something I read a long time ago. But this word leukocytes is coming to me. I don't even know what a leukocyte is, but I know it has to do with the blood. Kate would know. Is there anyone who has a problem with their leukocytes or, or white blood cells? No? Okay, maybe you can make this stuff up. Or maybe the person has stepped out of the room. I don't know. Are you coming up for prayer? Are you a white blood cell person? 
You're not sure, but you might be. All right. What do you have? Autoimmune thing, and what was the last part of it? Oh, lymphocytes. That's pretty close to leukocytes. Maybe I did get my merds wixed. Autoimmune, which one? Okay, fibromyalgia? Diabetes? Diabetes? Diabetes, all right. Now, one of the things we've learned about these autoimmune complexes is there's near, nearly always somewhere back in the history the individual probably had a setback in life, maybe a bunch of them. And somewhere along the way, they, in so many words, it gets expressed, obviously, in their own language, in their own time. But the substance of what they've expressed is, it's enough for me, O Lord, let me die. Elijah prayed that prayer, so you're in good company. You know, there's no condemnation. But with that, it, it's, it seems to release something into the body, and the body starts to shut down. It closes in on itself. It attacks itself. So a key part of getting people free of these kinds of diseases is to renounce that old vow or that, that old prayer even, if, even if it wasn't a vow. This is not suicide, by the way, just to be clear. This is more like, it'd be good if this just ended. Suicide is, I'm going to end it. It's a lot more intentional. But it starts with that kind of, I give up, I want to die. And it releases something into the body. Now, oftentimes, there's a need for inner healing of whatever the event was or series of events that caused that person to despair. I'm giving you a major key to ministry here to autoimmune diseases because we didn't do much of the how this weekend. But we have the authority to release those things. We have the authority to release vows. We have the authority to release those death wishes. Are you a leukocyte or a lymphocyte or a something a site? Blood cells. Oh, this is going to be fun. Yep. Ever since you were 10 and your mom went into hospital, you've been waiting to die. Boom. There you go. That's what, that's what this thing will do. Now, the way I'm going to do this ministry time is I'm going to lead you guys in a prayer of collectively renouncing the death wish. Again, not that you were suicidal and we're not putting a pin on you, but the death wish and giving that to the Lord. And we're going to break the power of those words and intentions. Because as a man or woman thinketh in his heart or her heart, so is she, so is he. This is, this is where this arises. Now, you might need some inner healing. That's why Dan and Lori are up here. Kate's ready to jump up. Um, we've got others from the church who can pray with you if you need it. You might not. But as we release that thing, that becomes a blockage. That's when we know when we say, why doesn't the healing happen? This kind of a death wish, this kind of a despair of life, it becomes one of those things that inhibits the power of God. You say, God's unlimited. He created the world. Yeah, I know. But down here on earth, the world we live in now, these, in, these inhibitions matter. And when we remove them, typically we see people get healed. I've done these before and we've seen every single person in the line get healed. I'm believing for that this morning. Make sense? You guys ready? It's okay to cry. We can give you some Kleenex. 
even before we start praying. You don't have to pray over the mic. You don't have to pray loudly, but do pray aloud. Don't just whisper it in your mind. You can whisper it with your lips. Father, in Jesus' name, I choose life over death. For the times in the past where I've said it is enough for me, O oh Lord. Let me die. I do not want to die until you summon me home. And so with this, I renounce my vow. I renounce my wish. I renounce my agreement with death in the name of Jesus. And I command the death in my body to leave me in Jesus' name. Now for the six of you, three diabetes, a fibromyalgia, the lymphocytes, not leukocytes, and whatever this one was, I didn't get the detail. In the name of Jesus, with the authority he has given me as a believer, I break the power of the spirit of death over your bodies, and I command death to leave the body. Now, get out. Death, leave in the name of Jesus. And with that, Father, we release the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave us unto healing. We speak into the body chemistry. We speak into the blood cells, and we command healing to be released all the way through the body. Lord, give them a physical witness of fire, power, of electricity, whatever you choose. But, Father, give them a witness in their body of that divine power that so mightily works within us that is like the raising of Jesus from the dead. That's it. In the name of Jesus, stop it now. Go, receive the healing of the Lord. More, Father, release power. Release power on their bodies in Jesus' name. If you start feeling like you're going to fall, it's okay. You've got people behind you. You don't have to worry about falling. What you need to do is yield to the power of God. We teach on yielding to the Holy Spirit. Yielding means get out of the way, let him do what he wants. And if that means you're going to go down, we catch you. <laughs> That's it. More. More, Lord. Let the power flow through their bodies. Power and authority. This is what we're talking about. We use the authority of Jesus to release the power of God. Lord, we want to see all of these systemic diseases broken. Now we speak to the pancreas. Come back to life. If there is power that raised Jesus from the dead, then, Lord, you can bring the pancreas back to life so that it produces insulin and sugar is no longer a poison. We break the power of diabetes over this pancreas. We break the power of diabetes over this pancreas. Release him. Death, release him in Jesus' name. That's it. Kate's doing well. She doesn't need any help. All the fibromyalgia, everything that has afflicted the nerves all the way to the extremities, we break the power of this grief that's over you in Jesus' name. Now, Lori, you might want to take her through some inner healing. Just because I know enough about the way fibromyalgia gets healed, it's usually helpful to drill in a little deeper than what I've just done. 
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Do this. Release more. Now, I am aware that it's five to noon, and I just want to say just nobody feel held captive. If you need to go, feel free to go. We'll do this for a bit more. And if you would like to come up for prayer for other things, you can do that too once we finish with these. But I really wanted to go after what the Lord spoke. So, Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing up here, and we thank you that you confirm your word with signs following. Father, we ask now that you would send us out into the world, confident in our authority in you, equipped to release the power, and ready to bring the kingdom everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.